electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. People, my friends, I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, talk about how market can turn around. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Heads you lose, tails you lose. Oh, that's how tons of very smart money managers see this market. If the Fed tightens too much, we're going to have a horrific recession and profits will evaporate. If the Fed doesn't tighten enough, inflation will keep rampaging and eroding the value of your portfolio. They scoff at the idea that there might be some sort of middle ground Goldilocks solution, a fairy tale, if you will. They're dubious about days like today where the Dow gained 92 points, the mighty Dow. Gained 92 points. The S&P advanced 0.1%. NASDAQ inched 0.01%. Sometimes I think they want it to go down. Maybe they want you to lose money. Maybe they've made their money. Don't care if you do. See, hardly a day goes by without someone reminding me of this sour dichotomy. And I laugh and I tell them that I see things quite differently. Yeah, I laugh because I see so many segments of the market that could be potential winners in 2023. It's hard to take these supposedly sophisticated doomsayers. Seriously. You know what I've been thinking? I've been thinking about this. Maybe it's because there's only five more months of Memorial Day. They're thinking they're like gardeners. They're like gardeners who decide not to plant because the weather conditions look frightening now, particularly in Chicago not realizing that the current weather is temporary and it's a long darn season. Mostly these bears love to focus on the big picture and the major averages. They have what's known as a top-down view of things. They're only looking at the macro data and the Fed without doing a stitch of actual digging on individual companies. They're trying to scare you away from planting anything. They don't have those knee pads I have, you know, where you're like going like this. They don't have anything like that. They ain't got no trowels. 
Maybe it's because I've been gardening for 35 straight years. Nice, hopeful hobby full of potential pitfalls. But I see varietals that are worth betting on every single day. The naysayers don't know a potato from a tomato. Me? Jim's none better tomato sauce wouldn't exist if I listened to these guys. That was easy. The bears only want to pull weeds. But I'm more focused on planting down, planting down some sector seeds because there are a lot of them that could work next year. I'm going to break them down for you because I'm in a gardening mood. First is healthcare. Now, this is the first time in recent memory where we're not seeing any pushing from Washington on drug pricing. And we're far from enough. You know, we're pretty far from the next presidential election that these companies won't be used as the typical political pinatas. At least not in 2023, they won't. Now, the top down perma bears. It may be too nice a name for them. Perma weeds. I don't know. Think I'm trying to find a needle in a haystack. But you know what? Picking quality healthcare stocks isn't like they're looking for a needle in a haystack. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Maybe even with a machine gun. Eli Lilly's got this. Listen, I'm not going to just give you one example. Listen to me. I'm giving you one example. Listen. Manjaro. Not Kilimanjaro. Manjaro. That, get this. This isn't a BC drug. At just 15 milligrams, this will give you a 22.5% reduction in weight over 72 period, period, 72 week period, according to one phase three study. A reliable weight loss pill, that's like a license to print money. In a couple of weeks, when everyone's making their New Year's resolutions, how many millions of people will swear that they're going to lose 10 pounds? They're going to go crazy for this drug. So it hasn't been approved yet. So I want some, I want to let some top-down strategist who's only looking at the bond market, the twos and the tens, scare me from owning Eli Lilly? Their biggest issue, can they make enough to meet demand once it's approved? I call that a high-quality problem, which is why it's a big position for the Chapel Trust, of course, which you can follow. Pretty much, I write about this thing every single day for the investing club and talk about it and do everything with Jeff Marks, other than say, I want the drug now. Next up, you, manna. Humana just had an amazing quarter. Yes, an amazing one. This managed care company had a second-rate Medicare Advantage program last year. If you're on Medicare, you need one of these supplemental plans because lots of doctors don't take Medicare. Hi, I'm Jim Cramer. Do you take Medicare? No. That's how usually it goes when I see a doctor these days. Last year, I had a professional with some real dough screen this stuff for me. And United Health was hands down the winner for a program that made it so I could go see a lot of doctors. But when she came that back to me this year, she said, you know what? Humana, Humana had changed their tune. They had the best medical advantage business. Holy cow. Who would ever thought that? And who cares, by the way, if the Fed engineers are hard landing for the economy? Humana's not even on the darn airplane. Health insurance is recession-proof. Trust now owns this one, too. An unheard of buy for me. Humana. Humana? Then there's Johnson & Johnson. Oh, that's hard to find. J&J. Wow, how did I come up with that one? Who's ever heard of J&J? All right, this stock's been pulled down. It's been in a rut. Pulled down by all those non-pharmaceutical products that don't have much pricing power. Things like Neutrogena or Baby Powder or Band-Aids. Great name. Great name brands. Lousy growers. So it, they're kind of like... Like, you know what? They're like radishes. 
I mean, they're really hard to grow, actually. So J&J is spinning off the consumer division as a separate company that can consolidate a mature industry, while the remainder becomes a high-growth drug and medical device company. Are we supposed to avoid that because the Fed might get it wrong? The bears are confident they'll either overshoot or undershoot, but either of those outcomes is fine if you own the stock of the Brothers Johnson. Say you don't like healthcare. Have you considered the trillions of dollars the federal government's throwing at bridges, tunnels, and buildings, regardless if the Fed throws us a severe slowdown? Yeah, it's already banked. Do you know how much steel they're going to need? Nucor's the best steel maker in the country. They're going to be in that mix, and the earnings estimates are way too low. Don't you think Deere and Caterpillar will have to go 24-7 just to meet the demand from the engineering construction firms that build this stuff? Their order books are insane. Their gross margins voluminous. Their international competition, gone. It's the way it used to be when America dominated manufacturing. Oh, and let's not forget, you've got one more reason to buy deer. There's a global food shortage. That's why I recommended Corteva last night. They make genetically modified seeds and pesticides. Agriculture is insanely strong right now, but the bears want you to ignore that whole industry and instead focus on the two-year treasury, which is apparently sending all the wrong signals. Oh, I guess I got to be scared. I ever see the twos and tens in my garden. Maybe I, maybe I got the wrong varietals. If you bring up all the government spending that's going, to hit, that's going to hit next year, these strategists will tell you why that's terrible for the economy. Because it's inflationary, and we've already got enough of an inflation problem. That's probably true, but it's totally beside the point here. Even if it's inflationary, it's still good for Nucor, Caterpillar, and Deer. The real inflation is in white-collar America, and that's going to come down in 2023 because we simply won't need as many computer sciences, bankers, lawyers, advertising people, and by the way, yes, even contractors, because housing is going to be hurt by higher rates if the Fed overshoots. We just learned today that rents are at last falling pretty precipitously. Something to watch. You know what's always worth planting? What's really hardy? The bargain retail stocks. The bears will tell you the retail earnings must be coming down. Sure, I don't care. That's fabulous for places like TJX, who are really ready to pounce on the soon-to-be carcass that is Bed Bath & Beyond. These all price chains by excess inventory from struggling chains. The worst retail do- that does as a whole the more opportunities they get. Same goes for Burlington. How about our Ali's Bargain Outlet? I never, I never bump into it, mine. Hey, what does a Mike Wilson super bearish crystal ball over at Morgan Stanley say about that? Honestly, I don't care. I wonder if he belongs to Ali's army like I do. I don't think he's in my battalion. Hey, by the way, you won't see Nike in the Bargain Outlet either. Excellent quarter just this evening. Uh, speaking of Morgan Stanley, that's one of my favorite financials for 2023. It's got an insanely cheap stock, a high dividend, and its profits are roaring. Will, Mor- Will Morgan Stanley earnings be eroded by inflation? Frankly, the more the Fed tamps down on inflation, the more I want to stick with a company that makes its best numbers when we get 4% unemployment up a bit from here down, uh, and 4% inflation quite a bit from here. That's likely where we're headed. How about Goldman Sachs? Whether the Fed overshoots or undershoots in 2023, it's hard to imagine a worse year for IPOs or mergers than this one. Yet Goldman still crushed it. What do the bears say about that, especially now that the firm's cleared out a lot of dead wood, or at least wood that wasn't burning hot enough? Then there's aerospace. We have a tremendous travel boom right now. It's an, causing an impossible shortage of planes. With only one company fully certified to sell all sorts of air, commercial aircraft, Airbus. What happens when Boeing gets clearance to sell their full product line? Even if the Fed takes rates to 7% and we have a serious slowdown, that might not be enough to bring down Boeing. Not when there's an airplane shortage. I wonder if FedEx, which just had a great quarter, needs more planes. Good number. 
So I see plenty of opportunities for next year. That said, I'm not hopping on the tech bandwagon. I've said over and over again that whether the Fed undershoots or overshoots, tech's likely to be hurt the worst. The bears are absolutely right to scare you away from tech. That garden's coming up empty. It's fallow. It's a gigantic oversized part of the market still, though. And that's where the pain is going to come from, as it continues to come from. But the bottom line, there's a whole market beyond tech. And companies like Eli Lilly or Uman or J&J or Cat or Deer or TJX or Morgan Stanley, they're going to grow real well next year. They're going to get in my boxes. So don't let the pessimists convince you that the entire class is barren. They are thumbsuckers. I got green ones. Mark in Indiana. Mark! Hey, Jimbo. Mark, Mark. in Indiana, home of number one Boilermakers. Hey, my question's about Kroger. I bought it as a defensive play just before the last earnings release. And uh, since that time, it, it, it's it's actually underperformed the market by about 4%. And I'm wondering if you think it may be associated with the what? Albertsons merger. And- it is. I mean, you know what? They say it's the 700,000 whatever union jobs. I believe them. I have to like program like Albertsons. But we got a justice department that's quite different from what people think. And at FTC, it's really different. They are anti-deal. So it doesn't matter. You can put two angels together and they'd be able to say it's the devil. All right. There's a whole market beyond tech. Don't let the pessimists convince you that the entire asset class is barren. Well, man, money tonight. 2022 was certainly not the year of the IPO. But of this year's class, who are the winners and who are the losers? I'm taking a snapshot of the cohort. Then we're talking closer look, taking a closer look at the winners in the financial space for the year and revealing a couple of ideas that I think are going to work in 2023. And it's the best performing sector of the S&P 500 so far this year. But can the energy sector ever performs in 2023 if oil doesn't do anything? I'm finding out from RBN Energy's Rusty Brazil. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. 
with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Before we move on to the new year, it's worth looking back on the year that was. That's why I keep highlighting the best performers in each sector. But tonight I want to do something different. I also want to take a look at another corner of the market, one that's mostly been forgotten in 2022, and that's the IPO space. After a couple of years where we were constantly flooded with new deals in 2021, we had more than 600 companies come public, either via traditional IPO or SPAC mergers. This year, that flood slowed to a trickle. Wall Street no longer had the patience for these initial public offerings. We've had very few traditional deals, and thank heavens, very few SPAC deals. It's gotten incredibly ugly thanks to the Federal Reserve's relentless and warranted war on inflation. Of course, as I see it, that's a good thing. One reason the market's been hit so hard this year is that we had too many IPOs in 2020 and 2021. And that created what I call a stock glut. We need to get a stock shortage before this market can truly bottom. And that can't happen unless companies stop coming public. Fortunately, what's more or less what's happened this year, and that's why it's been maybe a tremendous setup, as I said at the top of the show, for 2023. Now, last week, Renaissance Capital, the IPO research firm that's been so great to us, published a preliminary look back on 2022. And the numbers, I've got to tell you, they were shockingly small. So far, we've only had 71 IPOs, raising just $7.7 billion, just measured by the proceeds. This is the weakest year for IPOs in more than three decades. And that 71 number honestly sounds bigger than it really is, because most of these deals were tiny, and I mean really tiny, like I can't talk about tiny. Only 16 of them raised more than $100 million. When we ran a check on that figure, we found 17, but that's still a ridiculously low number. I mean, we've had years where there's been like billions upon billions and billions of dollars raised. This was not one of them. When Renaissance Capital compiles these numbers, they exclude deals smaller than $50 million to uh, the closed-end funds, the SPACs. We did our own count with some of the tiny deals they exclude. And we got 98 IPOs this year. That's right. We counted them up, and they're like, we counted these little tiny ones. Why so few? Very simple. Of those 98 stocks, just under 20% are currently trading above their deal price. On average, the members of the class of 2022 are down. They're down. <laughs> what a bear market. They're down 34% from where they came public. That is nothing short of horrendous. When you break it down, the smaller deals have done much worse than the largest ones. If you only look at the 17 IPOs that raised more than $100 million, 9 out of 17 are up from where they came public. 
on average, they're up just over 15 percent. In other words, legitimate companies that had the chutzpah to do an IPO in a very big year mostly did fine. I'm telling you, I'm looking at those companies for next year. Those could be real winners. But if you tried to track uh, uh, to rack up home runs in the smaller deals, which I know a lot of people did, because a lot of people like to trade these little dollar stocks. Oh, man, was that a sucker's game. Hey, listen, you know, we counted 22 IPOs that raised just $10 million or less. 21 of those 22 are now below where they came public. On average, they are down 56%. That is awful. I think you need to be highly skeptical of anything this small. They just don't work. Hey, speaking of tiny IPOs, we noticed another trend this year. We've had about two dozen very small deals where the issuers sold not shares. Listen to me on this because you might be fooled by this. Not shares, but units consisting of one share and then usually one warrant to purchase another share at the offer price. One share and one warrant to to buy another share at the lower price, uh, at the offer price. Now, the reason why I want to, I got to get this straight. See, here's what's happening. There's a lot of shenanigans in the market, and this share and warrant offering is one of them. Now, it used to be something I liked because I wanted to be able to buy another share, but these are losing money left and right, maybe for you. Maybe people thought they were getting a great deal with these things, but they ended up getting ripped off. All these companies are too small to mention on air. I can only say if you participated in these bizarre micro deals, you probably got hosed because the stocks are mostly down huge from where they came public. Many are now trading for under $1. I sure wish I could name them, but we're not allowed to do that on the show. But I've got to tell you, this is some scam that I want ended. How about the larger deals that we're actually worth noting? We've only covered a handful this year because there were so few of them, but some of them have done pretty darn well. Back on April 22nd, we highlighted Accelerate Energy, which leases floating natural gas conversion and storage infrastructure. Hey, basically, their ships make it possible for countries to import natural gas via sea. I pounded the table in this one when the stock was at 24 and change because after Russia invaded Ukraine, the whole world suddenly became desperate for American liquefied natural gas. And the only way to get it was by quickly building out their liquefied natural gas infrastructure. Accelerate rallied all the way to $31 and changed at its highest last month, though it's now pulled back to 25 since then, in part because energy prices, as we know, have come down. Still, that's a much better performance than the 10% loss in the SP500 of the same period. You know what? I still like Accelerate. I think it's got a great story. Next up in June, we told you to stay away from the pending IPO of Ivanhoe Electric. Right, this was a mining technology company that struck me as more of a business plan than a business. They know nothing! The kind of conceptual name that could have done very well if it came public last year, but was bound to be a dud in 2022. Sure enough, Ivan Electric came public at $11.75 before quickly falling to $7. That said, in the last couple months, it's made quite a comeback, including an insane 20% run on high volume last Friday. I remain very skeptical of Ivan never been a big Walter Scott fan myself. Uh, more importantly, the insider lockup. Yes, the lockup on insiders, it expires on Christmas. So if you own it here, I recommend it. You recommend the register before the insiders do. Maybe like tomorrow. Finally, in late October, we talked about Intel spinoff of Mobileye, their self-driving car and advanced driver assistance division. 
This one was tough because while I very much like Mobileye as a business, I felt nervous about the stock's red-hot start. Mobileye had already jumped from $21 to just under $29 when we covered it on the night of the IPO. I told you to wait for a pullback to 24, where the stock would be trading at less than 20 times earnings. Maybe I was a little too cautious. While Mobileye did pull back over the next few days, it only came down to just under 25. Since then, the stock's rebounded hard, coming back to 33 and change. What's driving the move? First off, the quiet period for the analysts at firms that brought this thing public has ended, and their coverage has all been worshipful. Second, Mobileye reported a strong quarter right out of the gate just a couple of weeks ago, including some excellent guys. So where did I come down on mobile, I say, now? Again, I still love the business. It's even better than I expected. These are smart guys. But, and this is a mighty big but, even though Intel spun this thing off as a separate company, they continue to own about 94% of it. If Mobileye keeps doing well, I got to believe Intel will gradually sell down that stake. That's real bad news for their fellow shareholders. That's why even though I like Mobileye, I can only recommend buying into weakness because the Intel overhang means some weakness is almost inevitable. Here's the bottom line. In an anemic year for IPOs, only a few of these names are even worth noting. The real takeaway is that large deals mostly did okay, but most of the IPOs we got in 2022 were tiny. And if you got a piece of them, you lost your shirt, particularly the ones with warrants. Please, please, I'm begging you, don't make that mistake again in the new year. Bad Money's back here for the break. Coming up, Santa's great with trains and cookies, but leave the financials to Kramer. Next. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Now have just seven trading days left until we close the books in 2022. So before we break for the holidays, we've been looking back on the year's best performing stocks broken down by sector. Last week, we highlighted the winners from the five strongest groups. They were energy, the utilities, consumer staples, healthcare, and the industrials. This week, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, looking at the weakest sectors in descending order. Last night, it was the materials sector. Tonight, it's the next worst performing cohort. Oh, boy, I know. You're bored by them or you don't want to hear about it. I don't care. It's the financials. They're down 14% for the year on average. But you know what? Like most of these sectors, like I said at the top of the show, as broken down by global industry classification standard, the financials are a bit of a catch-all category. You got insurance companies, a classic defensive group that had a phenomenal year because their stock's too great in a slowing economy with rising interest rates. Think about this. Do you stop paying your premium even in a recession? And more important, higher rates mean the insurance companies can take your premiums 
and reinvest them for much better risk-free return. Many of these companies are limited to investing in the bond market, so higher rates are huge for their bottom line. That's why the 14 best-performing financials in the S&P 500 were insurance companies. Then you got the banks, the capital markets plays, and the credit card companies. The banks are all in negative territory for the year, down more than 27%. I mean, it is kind of embarrassing when you think about it, uh, because they should have done much better, given the fact that the yield curve is such they can reinvest your deposits, big prices. But on average, the capital market plays are down nearly 20%. Credit card stocks are down 24%. There's no secret why anything related to capital markets is done badly. That business has been frozen all year. And credit card industry has been slammed by worries about lower consumer spending and much higher defaults as the economy slows down. Kind of what Powell wants to happen. Now, what surprised me is that the banks have done so poorly. The traditional banks instantly become more profitable every time the Fed tightens because, you again, Remember what they can do. They can take your deposits and invest them in treasuries risk-free for a better return. But Wall Street's worried they'll get slammed by bad loans. That's historic. That's what's happened, particularly if we have a period when we have high unemployment. As we go into a Fed-mandated recession and borrowing sometimes down in some areas, like the now more of a mortgage business. But if you have great employment like we have, I don't think that these loans are going to deteriorate nearly as fast as, say, 2008. Rather than just looking at the best-performing financials for the year, I want to break them down into different groups because the top three are all insurance companies. Arch Capital, I didn't know them well at all, up 36%. WR Berkeley, old line company, up 30%. And Globe Life beats the heck out of me, up 25%. Let's start with Arch Capital, the best-performing insurance thing. They do specialty insurance, reinsurance, and mortgage insurance in North America, Europe, and Australia. We don't know this company all that well because it just joined the S&P 500 on November 1, taking the place of Twitter... There's nothing particularly special about Arch Capital. But the company delivered a series of strong quarters. Its business is really booming here, despite some big payouts for recent uh, natural disasters, like Hurricane Ian. Stock sells for less than 12 times earnings. After this run, 12x, okay? So I think it can keep running. I mean, that's just a very expensive stock. And clearly management agrees. You know why? Because they just announced a billion-dollar buyback authorization yesterday, even though it's up here. Next up, the best-performing capital markets play was Raymond James Financial, the brokerage wealth management and investment banking outfit where the stock just rallied, rallied 5% for the year. I mean, this is actually up. but it was really up a lot back then. That may not seem much to you, 5%, but with one exception, every other capital market stock is down over the same period. Raymond James is a very solid asset management group, and they've made some savvy acquisitions of late. Plus, the stock's cheap, trading at less than 10 times next year's earnings estimates. I think you continue to grind higher. But if you're betting on a capital market's comeback, I'd much rather own the big boys like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. But this proves to me once again, you know, all these big strategies that keep telling you, listen, the market can't make any money. You've got to lose money in between you know, the S&P's going down, all the big wigs. They don't understand stuff like Raymond James. Then there are diversified financial stocks. Now, that's led by Warren, stock, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. It's up less than 1% for the year, which is much better than the broader stock market, even if it's only treading water. Why didn't it do better? Look, Berkshire's top holding is what is in the crosshairs of all these strategies, Apple, which currently accounts for roughly 40% of their entire portfolio. And Apple's down 25% for the year. I'd rather just own Apple directly if you want to bet on a turnaround this year. Again, remember, I'm saying that I think Apple will probably have to pre-announce at the beginning of next week of the new year. And that's what everyone's trying to get out ahead of. That said, Berkshire Hathaway's always been a great long-term performer, and nobody ever went wrong betting on Warren Buffett. How about the regional banks? Okay, now the 
top performer here is an Alabama-based regional financial, parent of Regions Bank, that has 1,300 branches across the South and Midwest. There's nothing particularly sexy about Regions. It's just a good, solid regional banking franchise with a nice 3.85 dividend yield. Remember what I said at my conference call last week? Boring is good. Of course, the stock's still down 5% for the year because of a tough environment. In my view, even though Regions looks cheap trading at eight times next year's earnings estimates, it's much more expensive when you judge it based on its tangible book value. Therefore, I prefer something like Huntington Bank shares, Ohio-based, which has a lower price-to-book ratio and a higher 4.5% yield, and I like the area pro-business. Finally, let's not forget about the big national banks. The best performer, Wells Fargo, is still down 14% for the year. Again, tougher environment, but you know I like Wells so much that it's the largest holding for my travel trust. Yes, they just reached a $3.7 billion settlement with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau for their bad practices under the old management. Although the company tells me that might only end up being more than $5.5 billion. That's including fees, uh, don't forget, lawyers' bills, uh, to put its, its horrendous legacy of poor customer treatment to bed. That's a lot of money. But it's worth it taking rid of that darn overhang, which is why the stock initially rallied on news. I think Wells Fargo is a fantastic long-term turnaround story. Remember, this stock, look where it was. Okay, It was here. It, and it was not as good a bank up here. As long as we don't have a severe recession, this bank, which has very few bad loans, the lowest it's ever had, I think could be a monster performer. And now you've got the bad news out today. It's not going to be bad news again tomorrow. All that said, some of my favorite financials for 2023 were far from the top performers 2022. Uh, in particular, I'm feeling very good about Morgan Stanley, another travel trust name. Remember, even though anything related to the capital markets has been awful, Morgan Stanley spent years pivoting into the asset management business, much steadier. Although it also takes a big hit when the stock market goes down because the cut, the, uh, their cut depends on assets under management. Lower stock prices equal lower assets. Still, those businesses will turn around eventually. And in the meantime, Morgan Stanley's paying you. It's 3.6% yield to date. I like it. Last but not least, we just spoke to S&P Global last week. Now, S&P has struggled this year. It's my kind of fintech, so to speak. It's struggled because their biggest business is rating creditworthiness of bonds, and there just haven't been a lot of bond issuance lately. But if the Fed stops tightening next year, then S&P Global can make a major comeback. Everyone's given up on this fantastic long-term growth stock that I think will have a hockey stick up when we finally get near to the end of the tidy cycle. So here's the bottom line. Outside of the insurance industry, which I know is boring, but has a lot of good companies, this has been an awful year for the financials. But if you think the Fed will stop bringing the pain at some point in 2023, then many of these names could become tremendous performers, especially Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, and S&P Global. Let's take some calls. Let's go to Barry in Florida. Barry. Yes, Jim. How are you? I am good, Barry. How about you? Very good, thank you. I'm calling about J.P. Morgan Chase. Amongst all the banks, do you still feel it's the best one to hold? It's a fantastic bank. Fantastic. And I saw yesterday it had just been hit and hit and hit. And I think it's finally hitting. You know, it's getting to some level that I think people are coming back and saying, you know what? At 3%, I can make money owning this thing at 130. They also feel like because it was 116, they're reticent to be able to buy all at once. And I agree with them. Buy a little and then buy more on the way down. Isaac in New York. Isaac. Oh, no. We're going to have to save Isaac for another day. I mean, I, yeah, I like Isaac, frankly. All right. This has been an awful year for the financials. 
But if you think the Fed will stop bringing the pain at some point in 2023, then many of these names could become tremendous performers, in particular like Wells, that Arch Capital seems interesting to me. And I should have just thrown in Chubb. Why? Because Chubb is a great insurer. Now, much more mad money ahead. Last week, OPEC maintained its outlook for global supply and demand for oil for the rest of the year. And then in 2023, does the Oracle of Oil agree? I'm fine, yeah. Then, we got two major announcements this morning regarding legal troubles for 3M and Wells Fargo. I just mentioned Wells. So what do you make of these? I'm going to give you my take. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. sector was the single best performing group in the S&P 500 this year. But these stocks have come down hard in recent months as the price of oil has pulled back to the mid-70s. Given that we're hostage to inflation right now, and energy is a huge part of that, this is an incredibly important issue. That's why tonight we're checking in with my favorite energy analyst, that's Rusty Brazil. He's the founder and, chair, and executive chairman now of RBN Energy to get a clearer picture of what's really going on. Rusty, welcome back to Bad Money. Jim, thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, Rusty, I got to tell you, this is one of the most unusual years in the world. I mean, we've got a red hot economy. We've got uh, China kind of closed. We've got Russia producing a lot, but they've always produced a lot. And yet all that's happened is the energy's going down in price. And will you please make some of the sense for me? Well, you know, it, 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 in terms of what's going to happen next, it all depends on what happens to the economy. You know, if we've got if we've got a strong economy, if we've got a strong China, we're, we're going to see $100 crude oil prices again. Uh, but uh, but if things basically drift off the way they are, we're going to see crude oil prices come down. Uh, and the good news, I guess, is that it, it should be uh, there should be a floor this time around because you've got OPEC and the Biden administration in a way aligned. So in other words, if the crude oil price gets below 70 bucks, then the Biden administration says that they are going to uh, uh, purchase crude oil for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and that'll keep prices higher. And of course, if prices get down below 70 bucks, OPEC is going to cut production. So you've got kind of a floor this time around. You don't know if it's really going to work perfectly, but it's certainly something that hadn't happened before. Well, we've got a bunch of oil people and really great companies, companies you and I know well, you know, Pioneer, uh, Devon, and they've decided, look, we are no longer just pump for the sake of pumping. We're going to offer very good dividends. Now, when I hear what you say, I wonder whether $70 allows them to continue to offer these very big dividends. Well, uh, they're going to be continuing to offer dividends. The question is how big. Right. Uh, $70 is certainly not 120 bucks, so things are way down. And these guys have double-digit cost inflation. So they're going to get squeezed, and they're going to be paying less out. Of course, they can do less in terms of, of stock buybacks, and that will create some cash. And, of course, they can always drill a little less, and that would create cash too. But given the fact that they've still got great rates of return at 70 bucks. I tend to think that they're going to stay, stay with the budgets that they've announced. Okay, now uh, let's talk about Russia for a second. You've taught me, uh, yeah. and many may tell me, listen, Jim, wells, they run out. You run them full speed, they run out, and you've got to replenish. Now, we have cut off Russian technology. Do they just have so much oil that they don't even have to worry about it? Well, they've got to worry about it, uh, but... 
uh, the the wells that we drill, the shale wells, they decline fairly rapidly, and then you've got to drill a lot more wells. The wells that Russia drills, they don't have nearly the steep decline rate that we have here with the shales. So in other words, they've got a little bit of insulation against the decline rate that they're seeing now. And let's face it, with, with, with enough money, and they're, they, they're still doing okay in terms of price, uh, they've got enough money to be able to bring technology in, I think, to be able to, you know, Keep, keep them from falling uh, precipitously. All right, boy, are they ever lucky. Now, how about natural gas? Uh, yeah. One of the things that confounds me is, I mean, we can save Europe with natural gas if we just kind of had an energy policy. But our president is reluctant to really sit down in the room with the energy people. He seems like he'd be more comfortable sitting down in Saudi Arabia and berating them. But couldn't we, in a couple of years, make Europe self-sufficient if we really had a policy? Well, I'm not sure if we could get to self-sufficient, uh, but uh, but and and again, if we're providing the gas, that's I guess that's not really self-sufficient, right? Well, but, but if we are, uh, if, let's we say we build out, like Sempra just keeps yeah. going as great as it does. Couldn't we just Absolutely. make it? If we got so much that we could make it so they're not hostage. We we could, but just exactly as you said, there there's not a policy that is going to get a pipeline built out of the Northeast, out of the Marcellus Utica. Uh, uh, obviously, Senator Manchin tried to make that happen. So far, it hasn't happened, at least as far as I know. And therefore, not only that pipeline, but other pipelines as well would be needed to produce out of that region. And if that doesn't happen, they're only going to be able to hit about 80% of their capacity of uh, of what they could produce if they just had the pipelines to get it out oh. and get it to LNG terminals and get it to Europe. We're shooting ourselves in our feet. Now, uh, what do you say about the idea, again, you've taught me something, about the five-year curve. I mean, what is it? The curve is, is rarely wrong. What does it say we're going to be at five years from now? Oh, no, no, Joe, no, no, Jim. Uh, the, the curve is mostly wrong. It is more wrong <laughs> than it is right. Okay. So the, 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 forward, the forward curve is simply the price that which someone will transact business for, for a buy or a sell at some time in the future. Uh, it is backwardated today. It's been backwardated for a long time now. And so uh, what that means is the price in the future is less than the price is today. We had a short period about two weeks ago where in the first six months of the curve, it was actually in contango, meaning that prices were a little bit higher. That didn't last long. And so the, the story that it tells you is that there are more sellers five years from now than there are buyers. And that's the reason the price is lower. And that gives you a sense of the sentiment of the market. But that's all you've really got out of the thing is a sentiment of the market. If the economy comes back strong, uh, and if China comes back strong, again, you can make a good case for $100 crude oil. All right, so Rusty, what I, what I take away from you is basically, look, no one really knows what the future is. But if the economy is strong and China's strong, the future's really bright for oil. And that's what you want if you own an oil stock. That, that is exactly right. Well, fair enough. It is always great to speak to you. You're straightforward. We're not going to worry about the curve. The Russians have enough oil. If China comes back and U.S. comes back, it's good. We can't necessarily make it so Europe's self-sufficient with ours because we have our own problems. And we have a lot of oil here, but they, they need oil prices higher to keep those big dividends up. So, Rusty, thank you so much for coming on the show. You always tell us it is your terrific source for everyone. That's RBN Energy's founder, executive chairman, Rusty Brazil. I start my morning every morning reading Rusty. You got to do the same. Man, money's back after the break.
Coming up, what's in your mind, Kramerica? Give us a call. The lightning round is storming the NYSE. Next. Are you ready to keep that? Tell the lawyer I'm let's go to Frank and your Frank. All right, give me a chill. A big booyah from down in McNabb College Town in upstate New York. Sweet. All right, my question for you, Jim, is uh, can you help a family of six out with three in college who just need some advice since stock ticker MGA store like MGA worries me. I would rather own an auto company directly. They're very inexpensive. Oh, come on. Let's go to Jerry, Missouri. Jerry. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. I want to ask, I want to ask about Roblox. No, Roblox is too expensive. I'm sorry. Not making money too expensive. Don't work for me. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up. Has a Godzilla-sized pine made Wells Fargo more attractive? Kramer's on everyone's favorite topic, complex financial litigation, next. Wall Street has no idea how to assess litigation risk. This morning, we've got two major announcements stemming from legal problems. One at 3M and the other one at Wells Fargo. These are incredibly complicated stories, and the market's not necessarily reacting the right way. Let's pull them apart. First, we learned the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has ordered Wells Fargo to pay $3.7 billion for legal activity committed by the old regime. That is a huge number. So why didn't the stock crater and instead just fell 84 cents? It was up at one point. Because it wasn't all fresh money. The, the, the fine, $1.7 billion, is new, but the rest is almost all money that's been spent, other than roughly $300 million for even more remediation than they've already racked up. Suboptimal, but within the range. Wells was such a bad actor in the eyes of the CFPB that they might not be finished. Remember, the bank committed loan violations for years, allegedly screwing over many of its customers. While the company didn't admit or deny the bad behavior, this is clearly an attempt to put the past behind them. I think the CFPB has had its fill of Wells Fargo's coffers. Easy picking seems over. But other agencies are still after them. In the end, I think that they might end up paying a total of, say, $5.5 billion entirely to put this whole thing to bed, which includes the legal bills and many other smaller fines that are, more, that are likely headed their way because old Wells Fargo was really a bad actor. Still, when you put it all together, they might, not, they might only be on the hook for another $1.8 billion on top of today's $3.7 billion settlement. Money they have and can pay, which is why I say only. When you consider that the stock's only up less than five bucks from its 50-week low, I think that's already baked in. Did trade at 60 not too long ago. Longer term, I think they sent, I get the sense Wells Fargo will no longer be in the crosshairs. No more consent decrees from anyone that are nearly as large as the one we just got. And the bank can begin to buy back stock and accumulate capital again. In other words, they've already gotten past the overhang. Other than that, this is an excellent turnaround story. And that's why I buy Wells Fargo aggressively here, unless you own it already like we do for the Chapel Trust. If anything, the stock should have been up today, not down about 2%. Remember, it traded well over $60 again last uh, five years ago, and it's a much better bank now. But that's when the government started putting the screws in them. Join the investment club. We've been telling you this one's bottoming. What about 3M, though? Well, now, that's a very different kind of litigation story. Today, 3M announced that it's getting out of its PFAS business, what are known as forever chemicals that are extremely strong with tremendous durability. They stick around. 
company will take a $1.3 billion sales hit. They'll also take charges of anywhere from between $1.3 billion to $2.3 billion to exit the manufacturing of what 3M describes as a safe chemical. They plan to stop all use by 2025 because they're facing, I think, so many lawsuits over this fam. They say the regulatory risk is high. Now, unlike Wells Fargo, this one is entirely open-ended. When I first heard about problems with PFAS, the rubric for the forever, forever chemical, I predicted 3M could lose tens of billions of dollars because this stuff is leached into the groundwater worldwide. Allegedly causes all kinds of cancers. Management seemed a little oblivious about all this. Initially, they only mentioned it in worldwide exposure in a small footnote at the end of a quarterly statement. Like it was nothing, but it's not nothing. They're being sued for allegedly giving people cancer. The legal liability here could be very big. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. What we're talking about legal worlds for 3M. The company also made earbuds for military that many veterans claim were defective in battle, leaving them with deafness or tinnitus, a ring in the ears, something I have, and it is awful. 3M says they did nothing wrong, but they might lose billions in these lawsuits, and there is a division of ear, nose, and throat people ready to testify on behalf of combat vets, sympathetic plaintiffs for certain. Both the combat earbud litigation and the forever chemical litigation are the polar opposite of what's happening at Wells Fargo. At Wells, they have a huge legal overhang, and the settlement puts most of it to bed. At 3M, they have two potentially colossal problems that are unquantifiable, and that makes the stock uninvestable, even if they're getting out of the forever chemical business. I just can't get my arms around the exposure of that great American company, and that means stay away. You never want this kind of negativity hanging over your head, which is why Wells Fargo just got a lot more enticing today and 3M now strikes me as a potential minefield. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.